Okay, good evening ladies and gentlemen. It's lovely to see you all here at the second uh, in the series of the uh, Fred Halliday Distinguished Lectures. Uh, I'm very happy to welcome you all on behalf of the International Relations Department. My name's Kimberly Hutchings and I'm currently the head of the International Relations Department. Before going on to introduce our speaker for this evening, uh, just a couple of remarks to put the lecture into context. Uh, the first Fred Halliday lecture last year focused on the popular uprisings in the Middle East in places like Tunisia and Egypt. Uh, and this, of course, was a major part of Fred's scholarship and teaching during his time here at the LSE. It's therefore, I think, particularly fitting that we have gender as a theme for the second Fred Halliday lecture, because this also was a hugely important aspect of Fred's work. Through his writing, but perhaps above all through his teaching here at the LSE, the LSE was one of the first places to actually have a proper course on women and international relations, women and international politics. It really did put gender onto the agenda of international relations in a major way. And I know in those early days it was Fred, Margot Light, and then Anne Tickner, who quite happily happened to be visiting at the time, who were teaching on that course. And an awful lot of young scholars benefited from it at the time. Uh, so it's great that this second lecture reflects another really important dimension of Fred's intellectual work, but also, of course, of his advocacy work and of his political commitments. So having said all that, uh, let me go on to introduce our speaker, Professor Cynthia Enlow, who's sort of lurking in the wings and will be uh, uh, coming up shortly. Uh, Cynthia is research professor in the International Development Community and Environment Department at Clark University. She started her career investigating issues of multi-ethnic politics development in the military in Southeast Asia, uh, becoming more and more influenced, before becoming more and more influenced by what she refers to as her feminist curiosity to begin to factor gender into her analyses. And since the early 90s, she's been one of the key pioneer scholars in the investigation of women, gender, the military, and international politics. Her book, Bananas, Beaches and Bases, Making Feminist Sense of International Politics, has acquired classic status in the literature on gender and IR. And since that book came out in 1989, she's gone on to publish many further books, of which the clue, I think, is always in the title. We have Maneuvers, The International Politics of Militarizing Women's Lives, The Curious Feminist, Searching for Women in the New Age of Empire, and in 2010, Nemo's War, Emma's War, Making Feminist Sense of the Iraq War. In 2007, Cynthia was the recipient of the Susan Strange, yet another person with a link to the International Relations Department at LSE, the Susan Strange Award given by the International Studies Association, in recognition, and I quote, of a person whose singular intellect, assertiveness, and insight most challenge conventional wisdom and organizational complacency in the international studies community during the previous year. It seems to me that there can be no one more appropriate to give the Fred Halliday lecture than someone of that description, for which reason I hope you will join me in welcoming Cynthia Enloe to speak on the theme for around about 40 minutes, after which we will have Q&A of how long does post-war last? Feminist warnings. 
great honor uh, to be here. I have to say it's a little daunting uh, to be um, honoring Fred, who had such a huge impact on international politics, on LSC, and on how we uh, wield our curiosity when trying to understand uh, so many uh, complex uh, developments in the world. So I'm very honored to be here um, as part of the celebration, really, of Fred Halliday and his uh, work and life. Um, I, just before I came over um, from Boston, I was in an event with Anne Tickner, who's a longtime friend and who Kim just uh, mentioned. Um, and Anne was actually reminiscing, um, uh, not in a very sentimental way, but in a uh, really quite feminist, uh, appreciative way, about that first course. And it was called Women and International Relations. Um, and how it had to be structured by kind of picking up expertise all around London, because nobody knew what it meant to do um, women and international relations, particularly if it's capital I, capital R. Um, and um, so Anne was really giving a lot of credit to Fred, um, along with Marco Light, for launching uh, that very innovative uh, course. Now, I think most departments work their salt, that's the proviso, um, uh, in international politics or political science and international relations, um, have somebody who really is uh, a specialist in gender and IR. Um, and in fact, that's when I do visits around literary young. I actually try to figure out whether the department's kind of up to snuff by asking, well, how many courses do you have on gender and IR? Um, they're usually happy to have one. Um, but, but it really is part of uh, Fred's and others like Antigone's um, lasting legacy. Uh, this evening, I thought it might be um, interesting for all of us uh, to think together about this thing called post-war. Um, the post is really the problematic uh, word that I want to explore. I increasingly realize that um, we can't understand post-war unless we really examine how long it lasts and what it looks like, and particularly how women experience post-war and how men experience post-war and how masculinities are created within this thing called post-war and how femininities are created within it. Um, so let me give you three vignettes to kind of mull over um, and I'll come back to them. The first is, imagine Northern Uganda. Imagine Northern Uganda where the conflict, the armed conflict there was being wound down. And imagine a pickup truck coming along a dusty road uh, amongst some villages in Northern Uganda. And imagine that on the back of the pickup truck are a number of teenage girls. And they're being dropped off at what the driver considers their home villages. So think of teenage Ugandan girls being dropped off by a driver, usually who is a um, insurgent commander, uh, at their home villages. That's the beginning for those girls of their post-war. Then think of a living room, a parlor, in Ohio, in the United States. 
and think about the masterpiece, you know, a lot of suburban homes in the United States. Even if they don't have fireplaces anymore, they have a kind of ceremonial mantelpiece uh, um, on which you put photographs. Um, and think of that mantelpiece in that suburban or small town home. And think of it as having photographs of a son who uh, didn't come back from service, military service in Iraq. So think about the mantelpiece. Think about who put the photograph there, who looks at the photograph, what they think of that photograph in that home in Ohio. And then a third vignette that I think about is think about a meeting in Hiroshima. Um, Hiroshima, I think probably some of you have visited there, but Hiroshima, while it has a very special place in many of our imaginaries, um, in fact, it's also a great big bustling city. It has a baseball team, it has a big business, it has high-rise buildings, as well as a park to commemorate uh, the American atomic bomb of the city in uh, World War II. So think of this meeting taking place today in Hiroshima. And it's a meeting of museum curators. And they are curators who are trying to decide what to do with the new wing of the Hiroshima Museum. So three vignettes. Curators around the table in contemporary Hiroshima. A mantelpiece in a living room in Ohio. And um, girls on the back of a pickup truck in northern Uganda. I pose these vignettes to try and make more complete more specific, more complicated, what post-war is and who experiences it and how it's created. Because post-war, I think, really is created. And we are amongst the creators. You know, it's not like them who create post-war, we create post-war. Um, Cynthia, you the mic, Cynthia. Oh! <laughs> and we're just all going to sit it. vignettes again, do you? Just think, Hiroshima, Ohio, the mantelpiece, right? The pickup truck, okay? In fact, if I just said those things three or four times, that would be the lecture, and then you could just go home. Okay, so here we go. Um, but I want to come back to those three vignettes, um, but use them to make um, a point, I guess, or maybe to remind myself, because all of this is about me trying to understand things that I don't think I've thought enough about. And it's how much this thing called post-war in any country, whether it be Cambodia or Bosnia or Serbia um, or Uganda or Japan or Iceland. Um, I'm spending more time in Iceland these days. They still think about World War II a lot. Um, how um, post-war is created, and it's created by a lot of minute kinds of creative activities, including putting a particular photograph on a particular place in your own family's house. 
And amongst the people who create the post-war is anybody who commissions, gives money for, and designs a monument. Um, I walk around London, but also Boston and Washington, and, and actually small towns anywhere, and I look at monuments that are reflective of somebody's idea of what should be remembered about some people after some war. Um, and am I right that there is now one of the newest monuments here in London? I went searching for it the other day, and I couldn't find it. I understand that there is now a new monument that is uh, really to remember the women who worked in the munitions factories, right? Where is it? Whitehall. Well, I walked all the way around Trafalgar, going off on all the spokes, and I thought, I'm going to find it, right? I've seen photographs of it, but... But that, and so that is 50 or 60 years after that war. That is, that, that for all the monuments there are around London, for that commemoration of that war, in fact, some women especially thought that, well, we still haven't really remembered it properly, meaning accurately, that we still haven't got a physical way of remembering, well, who waged that war? How was that war waged? Who should be remembered as having helped wage that particular war? So monuments are very interesting to me, not just as, I mean, they can be talked about in terms of aesthetics and so on, but I'm also interested in the timing of them. There is a Vietnamese um, uh, historian, uh, Ho Thi Tam Thai, um, and she has done a whole book on monuments to the several wars that the Vietnamese have fought against the French, against the Americans, against the Chinese, um, and to try and understand what is remembered um, in Vietnam that is now part of the Vietnamese landscape. Um, so I'm very interested in monuments, and I think there's a lot to be done about monuments, and which sorts of people are remembered in what form. So in the United States, and probably a lot of you know this, um, one of the most controversial war monuments um, is uh, by the architect Maya Lin. Maya Lin, when she won the award for the Vietnam Wall, it's called now, um, in, on the mall in Washington, she was a graduate student. Listen up, graduate students. She was a graduate student at the Yale Architecture School. And she, much to everybody's surprise and not a few dismays, uh, won the prize, the commission, to uh, create the Vietnam, what is now one of the most stunning war, anti-war monuments um, anywhere, I think. Um, have some of you seen it in, in Washington? You've, you've seen it, haven't you, Chris? Yeah, you've seen it. Um, and people go there to rub names. Well, the, it, they're almost all men's names. And the reason, and of course, they, they are not commemorating the Vietnam dead. They are only the Vietnamese dead. They are only commemorating the American dead. They aren't commemorating the Filipino dead. They aren't commemorating the Korean dead. A lot of South Koreans fought in the Vietnam War. They aren't commemorating the Australian dead. Only American military um, uh, dead are being commemorated. And people go there very, very intimately to do rubbings of just the person in their family or their high school or their friend, just their name up against the wall. And you'll see, if you go to the wall, you'll see a lot of very intimate um, uh, experiences going on as people rub the wall. The reason that there are so few, almost no, 
uh, women's names, uh, American women's names on the wall is because when the Vietnam War was fought, um, the U.S. government had a rule that no more than 2% of the U.S. active duty military could be women. That was a rule that was instated as a post-war correction after World War II. That is, after World War II, part of the demobilization of the American military and the remasculinization of the American military so it would be a normal military, because a lot of post-war is what, who, what does who think is normal and how do we get, quote, back to it. And a lot of the back is back to comfortable patriarchy. And so the 2% rule of the U.S. Um, active duty forces was a post-war rule passed by the U.S. Congress to reshape the U.S. military so it would once again look like a normal military. Um, so that if you go to the wall and you do a gender analysis of the wall, it's not just counting and seeing that you know 98% of all the, um, the, the people who died in the U.S. forces in Vietnam uh, are men, but to ask why, which is when in the gendered history of the United States did that war happen? Because that's going to affect the post-war. That is, every war I've come to believe, every war happens at a particular moment in every participant's gendered history, in the gendered history of Vietnam, in the gendered history of France, in the gendered history of Australia, in the gendered history of the United States, in the gendered history of South Korea. Um, and that you will see monuments that reflect both the gendering of that war and the attempts to regender society in the aftermath of the war. That is called post-war. So monuments, I think, are very, much more complicated than I think we oftentimes imagine, and it's partly because we don't do enough social history of monuments. Um, we also recreate um, societies, recreate our imaginations, recreate our understandings in post-war um, by the way we write children's textbooks. Is Melissa here? Melissa, oh, there's Melissa. Melissa and I had this really great conversation the other day and talking about, about schools. Well, one of the places that post-war gets created is in who commissions what kind of history books for which kinds of students in the post-war. Now, they look like, quote, children's history books, but they're really potent because they are framing a narrative. They are putting some things in and taking some things out. Um, they are positioning some people as key actors and other people as nameless, but at least on stage. And then it is creating whole silences about um, the realities of the war. But in those frames, the, the stories and narrations that we learn as children in school um, are very powerful. And a lot of the reasons we're all in graduate school is because we're trying to dismantle our childhood narratives. Um, and, but those childhood narratives aren't just very easily dismantled. So a lot of post-war, a lot of the creation of post-war is happening amongst textbook writers and how teachers teach those narratives. Subversively, passively, in agreement, 
One of the other places that post-war happens, of course, is in television and uh, uh, film narratives. I mean, Downton Abbey is a very interesting case of creating, both for Americans as well as for Britons and Canadians, by the way, um, a narrative about World War I. And for a lot of people who've never given a single thought to World War I, Downton Abbey is, in fact, the first time they ever heard of the White Feather Campaign. And whether they picked up on it, it's not really clear. But the fact that the scriptwriters of Downton Abbey decided to put at least a gesture towards the White Feather Campaign um, is really, um, really valuable, I think. But it, it says that post-war is being created years after, decades after, several generations after that last war. Um, you all, I, we, Cynthia Coburn and I and, and Kim were at a wonderful session uh, the other day, Friday, um, and um, we heard that there are plans in, uh, in the Cameron government to create a four-year commemoration whatever that means, commemoration of World War I, starting in 2014. Well, the thing is, who's going to take part in that? Whose narrative is going to get featured? Where, how is it going to be publicized? Which schools are going to be complicit in it? Which museums are going to be complicit in it? Which artists are going to be complicit in it? Um, so that the, the creation of narratives happen a long time after that war. Now, I'm going to come back to the vignettes, but I want to jump to the end, just in case you've all had busy days and you nod off. Right? So here, here's, here's the end, and then you can, you know, here's the dessert, and then you can fill in. What I think is really a, a worry is if we don't take seriously both the constructions of post-war and the ways in which masculinities and femininities are key to those constructions, oftentimes contested constructions about the post-war. If we don't take the workings of masculinities, plural, and the workings of femininities, plural, in the construction of the long post-war, several things I think we're in risk, we're at danger of doing. The first is we will really minimize how long wars last. There was just a survey done by an international NGO interviewing women and men, and then gender disaggregating the data, very important, um, in Sierra Leone. And they asked this question among several. Do you think the war in Sierra Leone is over? A majority of the Sierra Leonean men who were surveyed said, yes. So thank God the war in our country is over. A majority of the women asked exactly the same question, said, no, the war isn't over. So how long you think a war lasts can be really underestimated if, in fact, you don't ask both women and men how wars end and whether they have ended. And this is a lot to do with something that Cynthia Coburn is uh, famous for um, alerting us to, and that is whether women experience security and insecurity differently. And insofar as women experience a heightened sense 
of or a sustained perpetual sense of insecurity because the violence they experience does not end just when the peace treaty is signed, they are more likely to think that the war has not ended insofar as men do not have the same experience of the same kinds of violence or the same kinds of insecurity in their lives, they are more likely to think that the formal war has ended. The second bit of the dessert, I guess, um, is that if we don't take seriously the genderings of the prolonged post-war, um, we are very likely to misread the processes of militarization that continue to rumble through society even though the peace agreement has been signed. And I think it's one of the great advantages of thinking about militarization, not just war, is to see that in fact um, militarization can continue even when the formal, most mobilized version of collective violence, otherwise known as war, has ended. So that if one doesn't take seriously the experience of women with guns, for instance, women in Mali have been amongst the most astute um, analysts of what happens to whose guns when supposedly the war is over. Are the guns really handed in? If they're not handed in, where are they? And only some women's groups are beginning to be taken seriously as sources of knowledge and expertise about where are the guns when the war is over? Do they stay in people's homes? If guns stay in people's homes, it's very likely that women can tell you where those guns are. But it's also likely that if guns stay in the homes, that is, they're not handed in, that for women, the sense of insecurity is even greater than it was before the war when their partner or their father or their uncle didn't have access to guns. So to not think about the experiences of women and the experiences of men and the wielding of masculinity and femininity during this thing called the post-war means you're likely, you, me, we're likely to miss the ways in which militarization continues to rumble on even though this thing called the war is over. And since it's militarization in all its gendered forms that is, are the seeds for the next war or for the efforts to launch the next war, to underestimate militarization because you think the war is, quote, over, um, is a very dangerous assumption. The third bit of the dessert is that Wars cost more than we can imagine. Now, you know that there are some very innovative, very useful, um, very insightful new projects on the costs of war. One of them is located at Brown University in the United States, headed by Kathy Lutz, L-U-T-Z, who's a feminist um, anthropologist, and it's really important that it's an anthropologist that has created this project on the cost of war, and there's a website, and you can see sort of how she is trying to get a lot of different kinds of um, academic researchers involved in weighing the costs of war. But one of the things that we've learned from a lot of different research being done by um, feminist researchers in many parts of the world is that insofar as women are silent about their experiences of war, 
we are all likely to underestimate the cost of war. And I'll give you an example. Wars don't end for a lot of women who take care of the wounded. That the extent to which governments try to encourage the privatization of the care of the war wounded um, really encourages all of us to underestimate the costs of war. Let me put it in very particular terms. If you can persuade a woman that her five-year, 10-year, 15-year caring for her either mentally disabled or physically disabled soldier husband or soldier son is something she should never complain about. If she can't find the language to say, this isn't what I bought into, it wasn't my war, I didn't send him off to war, I am not the cause of his wounds, I'm not the cause of his anxieties, I'm not the cause of his nightmares, I'm not the cause of his unemployment. If she cannot find a way to say out loud, in public, that she feels that she is being unfairly burdened. Now just think of why it would be so hard for any woman to say that out loud. Because insofar as women are supposed to be uncomplaining caretakers, that that is one of the ways femininity is uh, valorized, is uncomplaining caregiving. Insofar as she cannot find the space, the tone, the words to actually talk about the unfairness of what this has done to her life, insofar as she doesn't speak out and we don't want her to speak out or don't find ways to encourage her to speak out, then we are complicit in the undercounting of the costs of war. Does that make sense? All right. So it means that to really understand the costs of war, whether they be in Uganda or Iraq or Afghanistan or Cambodia or Northern Ireland or the United States or the UK, it really means that we have to be seriously interested in those women who are the caregivers for the physically and the emotionally and mentally wounded after wars and not just in the UK and the United States, but in Iraq. I now find, and you probably read these reports too, when there is a car bomb, or there is an ambush, or there is a flare-up, as they would say, of fighting in what is supposed to be, you know, now the post-war. The, the figure that always makes the headlines is how many were killed in the car bombing or the roadside bombing, or the ambush. But I now actually go down further in the article and look for the wounded. And I try to think, so now what's going to happen? Like, who were those wounded? Right? How are they now going to be cared for? What has this done to that family's economy? What has this done to the family's gender relationships inside the household? I now think that we really have to think more about the wounded um, here in the UK, you probably know the work of the historian Anna uh, Carden-Coyne, who's at uh, Manchester. I really recommend her work to you, Anna Carden-Coyne, double last name. 
um, who has been doing some of the most exciting, to me, quite surprising work on the contests around defining masculinity amongst the war wounded after World War I. And she's been doing some very innovative research and then has gone to Cambodia to try and ask the same questions and to see who was trying to reconstruct the masculinity of the war-wounded men um, after the war and why that was so contested. So three things I think we miss if we don't take seriously post-war and its complex and intimate and mundane genderings. The costs of war, the ongoing militarization, um, and the ways in which post-war itself um, constructs our own understandings of um, war's uh, uh, length and when it ends. So now let me come back to the three vignettes. We doing well on time? Okay. By the way, have you been watching? LSE is so, do you notice how they, every other one, we are not going to be caught out here at LSE, right? We're going to have a woman and a man, and a woman and a man, a woman and a man, right? Somebody dreamed up that poster and they said, oh my God, we've got five guys in a row. Let's put in Michelle Bachelet and, you know, let's, you know. Anyway, it's very, very interesting. I mean, everything's constructed, right? 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 Um, and some committee worked on that. You know? <laughs> um, uh, so let's come back to the, to the three um, vignettes. And let's start with the girls on the back of the pickup truck. We've begun to learn, because of very, very good work by scholars like Diane Mazarana, and Diane, D-Y-A-N, Diane Mazarana, um, is a feminist um, researcher who does work for a lot of international agencies, including the United Nations, on what happens to women and what happens to men, what happens to boys and what happens to girls. And she says, do not ever call girls women, and do not ever call boys men, and do not ever call children children. If they're boys, call them boys. If they're girls, call them girls, because they will have different experiences. And so she is the one who really put that vignette of the pickup truck um, in my head. She said one of the things that happened in a number of sub-Saharan African states as wars wound down and people were being demobilized is that both insurgent forces and state forces didn't want to deal with the girls in their forces many of whom had been kidnapped, some of whom had kind of adopted the military unit as an alternative for their families when their parents had been murdered um, for various reasons, but a lot of them under duress in those militaries. And so a lot of commanders dreamed up this scenario. We all do this, right? One of the ways to shed responsibility is to dream up a scenario that allows you to think it'll all be okay without me doing anything. Right? It's pretty common for all of us to do. So what the commanders, male commanders, dreamed up was this. Men and boys will need some kind of serious engagement with services uh, after the war so that they can reconstruct their lives in the post-war. But girls, girls will just go back to being girls and maybe now young women. So what, the only thing you have to do with girls is just drop them off at their home village and they will magically return to being girls and women. 
Now, what Diane found, and a lot of other researchers who have followed Diane as well, is that, of course, a lot of these villages have very strong notions about what is a proper young girl and is definitely not a young woman, even if she's taken by force, who has spent the last three years in a mainly male, all-stranger military unit. And so these girls, in fact, are not welcomed back into the community. Some of them are teenagers, 16, 17, and they have children because they were forced into, quote, marriages uh, with male commanders. So they not only return, quote, tainted, at least in the eyes of um, even their own families and their neighbors, but they also return with these children without fathers and certainly without a pedigree of the village thinking this is a legitimate birth. So these girls, in fact, are left really um, afloat and they do not get the services. They're made invisible. Um, and it's only been recently, thanks to Diane and um, Vanessa Farr and some other people who are really serious about this work, to make explicit the child soldier as girl and the child soldier as boy. And not to imagine that you can construct both local policy or international policy treating children as children because they're not treated the same in their insurgent or their, mil their state military forces and they are not treated the same by um, people in the civilian world that are supposed to reintegrate them. So that's the vignette and the complication of post-war when you think about the girls on the back of the pickup truck. The second vignette, the parlor in Ohio and the mantelpiece, is something that I've only been really pushed to think more about um, because of a colleague of mine out in California who has become very, she's a, she's a folklorist. I mean, it really says, how are you going to understand post-war? Well, you can't just be a political scientist, that's for sure. It certainly helps if you're an ethnographer, but it turns out it's really helpful if you team up with a folklorist. And she has been following a Latino father whose son was killed in the Iraq war. And he has been, he has a wagon that he takes around to all kinds of peace marches um, that is really a altar, a tribute to his son and a damnation of condemnation of Bush's war in Iraq that killed his son. So he is by himself trying to construct a way of being a good father and yet being not um, valorizing the cause for which his son was put to death. But on those mantelpieces, you have families in the most intimate settings making up their own post-war narratives about who was my son? Was the epitome of my son's life when he was in uniform? I don't know if you did surveys in your various countries, including the UK, and you saw where, where if there's a member of the family that's been in the military, man or woman, but overwhelmingly men, is the prized photo of the son or the father or the grandfather a picture of him in a uniform? That's quite common, just as common as the prized photograph of the 
daughter or the wife or the mother is her in her wedding dress. The prized photo is the son in his or the father or the husband in his uniform. I mean, I know I had them all around my family's house. Interestingly enough, I don't think they were the prized photos of my mother. I think they were the prized photos of himself, of my father. <laughs> but they had pride of place, right? It was very important to him. Um, but in a lot of households, mantelpieces turn into almost altars. Now, some of you know this, that, that there are households in which um, whole rooms that used to belong to the son who was killed in Afghanistan um, are turned into untouchable sanctuaries, as if really that's the only way to come to terms with the loss and with the grief. But those are very important spaces. We shouldn't imagine that the only place that post-war is created is in monuments or in public textbooks. They are also created in very intimate spaces. And things are said or not said about how that um, son or daughter or husband or uncle died. And those narratives are very powerful family narratives. And I think it's really a feminist curiosity that says, step over the threshold. Never imagine that wars aren't fought inside of, of families. And the third vignette is the curator's meeting in Hiroshima. I was made to think about this. Um, I spent um, some time in Tokyo at Ochanomitsu University. And um, my Japanese feminist friends were very worried when I was going to Hiroshima. I had a little time off, um, and I was going to take the train down to um, uh, Hiroshima, um, which I, where I'd never I'd been to Japan before, but I'd never been to Hiroshima before, and it felt really important as an American to go. And so it was in that spirit I was going. And the Japanese feminist said, but Cynthia, be careful, be careful, don't absorb the narrative that we Japanese were simply the victims. It was, a, it was kind of a hard, I mean, they meant it to be hard for me to hear. Don't think that the way in which the victimization and the horror that was sent from the skies by the Americans on the Japanese um, of Hiroshima don't imagine that that means you don't think further about Hiroshima and what it was and how it got positioned by the government in the war. So with that in mind, I went and I, I think I wouldn't have really taken it on board if they hadn't given me this really strong warning. Um, and they, with their warning in mind, I realized that there was the original Hiroshima Museum. It's a very long, it's a beautiful museum beautiful and hard to go to, as it should be. A very long lateral museum, only two or three stories high, and goes um, along what used to be the neighborhood that was obliterated by the war, by the bombing. Um, and I realized, oh, there's an old wing and a new wing. And in the new wing, which is evidently very influenced by the current mayor of Hiroshima, who is a pacifist, and he insisted, along with Japanese pacifists um, like my friends, 
or anti-militarists, they insisted that the second newer wing tell why Hiroshima was a target, that in fact it was a major navy base, that, that, that one has to think about what Hiroshima was and how it was created as a militarized city by the government uh, to wage its war. So the two wings feel as though, rightly, they're in tension with each other, not as if the new wing is supposed to negate the horror of what you see in the old wing, not that the new wing lets the American militarists off the hook, not at all. But of course, you have to really work hard as a curator to make sure that the new wing doesn't have that effect on your understanding of the horror of nuclear weapons. But that's what makes me think about these curators sitting around the room. And I'm very interested. Are any of you museum curators? Really, we all need to know more curators, right? Because they, they are constantly thinking about both the material expression of a narrative, but also what narrative and how you change the narrative and what does it mean for the viewers. So I think about these Hiroshima um, curators trying to make sure that the blameworthiness of the Japanese militarists is not completely covered over by the story of the American perpetrated horror. So in each of these cases, I think, there is gendering that is at work here. And it's most obvious, perhaps, in the story of the girls on the back of the pickup truck who were in the insurgent forces and are now being dropped off to fend for themselves. Um, in the second um, a story, it means that within households and within extended families, one has to really listen as to who gets to tell what story of the person in uniform whose picture is on the mantelpiece. And what stories are not told? And what stories aren't allowed to be told? And how gendered are those stories about the son's masculinity? When did it reach its peak of respectableness, uh, respectability? Whose um, emotions are converted into a militarized valoration, valorization of service in the military? That's the militarization of a grieving mother. Um, and then in the last part, it's to think within curation and within museum presentations to what extent are women's stories and men's stories and the stories of victimhood um, represented in what ways to what viewers and what do viewers take away from that in a way that um, increases one's sense of a certain kind of feminized victimhood or masculinized heroism and the complicity of both. So I think we have, well, we have a lot of work to do, that's clear. But it's the kind of work that I think Fred Halliday would love for us to be doing, right? It's work that asks questions where we don't know the answers. It's to ask questions about the micro workings of politics as well as the macro workings of politics, both. Um, and it is work that cannot be done unless we take seriously the politics of masculinities and the politics of femininities. The, Hard news is we don't know very much. 
Um, and the fact that we don't know very much about the genderings of post-war puts us into a very vulnerable position, I think, to be remilitarized. But the fact that we don't know much means that you'll be in business forever. Thanks a lot. <laughs>
I'm wondering whether you think that quite a lot of the time, or at least your stories could be read as saying that for quite a lot of the time, it lasts forever for the women, mm -hmm. i.e. it wrecks their lives completely or, or else dominates their lives completely. Um, is that a fair understanding of what you're actually saying? Um, I actually, well, I think it's more of a puzzle for me because I think it is true that for a lot of women, wars do last interminably. Um, though they're not spoken about necessarily, except in rituals of grief and in silent caring for severely wounded war victims. Um, but I do think for a lot of men, wars last a very long time. Um, one of the um, uh, things that I, mainly what I do is I go around trying to urge people to do research that I can't do. So if, you know, if, you, if somebody here will think about this, and that is I'm very interested in men's veterans organizations and their reunions. And their reunions for a lot of men, I've heard this from South Korean feminists as well, that um, for a lot of men, their time in the military, even if it was conscription, and I was talking to a, um, a Turkish um, CO, conscientious objector activist this morning, and we were talking about this. Is Oscar here? Yeah, and, and, um, and for them, for a lot of men, not all men, for a lot of men, their time in their military service was the one time that they were part of the world. They were part of history, capital H. And for a lot of men, that's very hard to ever let go. And thus, the commitment to the veterans associations, the returning year after year to the veterans reunions, um, the thinking that the friendships they made, even if it wasn't in war, in the military, um, were a, a kind of friendship of an intensity that they've never had with any men and certainly not any women. So I think for some men, so I think it's more of a question, under what circumstances does the experience of war seem infinite for men? And on what circumstances does the experience of war seem infinite for women? And are they different, right? So I guess I wouldn't say that men's war, I mean, that the Sierra Leone survey is very interesting. And it was really about the extent to which Sierra Leonean women still felt the war was going on because there was so much violence in their life. And they couldn't imagine that they would think the war was over when their lives are just riddled with violence. Whereas for men, that level of insecurity seemed to be waning. So that, that's a very interesting survey, but I think it should really be posed more as a question than as if we know um, for sure. Okay, yeah, uh, it's really good. Next one is, yeah, just there. Thank you. Hi there. Hi, Professor Enloe. Thank you so much for speaking with us. I Aww. think this is so important, and it's amazing to hear your work um, oh, thank you. caps, captured in such a short amount of time, <laughs> your life's work. But um, my, my one thing that really stood out, one of many things that really stood out to me was when you spoke about femininity as being valorized, as being an un uncomplaining caregiver. Mm. And you spoke about the need for the space for women to feel brave enough to voice their needs and to voice their 
Um, Maybe they're complaints. They're complaints, even. I mean, look at the way I just said needs rather than complaints. I'm doing it myself. Needs is okay. Complaints is not. Exactly. Exactly. It's so fascinating. But you know, one of the things that I always, my mind always goes to is is the practice of these incredible revelations from scholarship. So, in your in your experience, in your opinion, in your work, how do we get to that point? What are things that we can do? You spoke about doing more research. What are things that we can also do outside of academia as um, non-academics? Yeah, thank right. you. Yeah, right. Or extra academics. Um, well, I think one of the, we can listen to how some other local groups in other places have really tried to take this on. And one of my models is the women in black in um, uh, Belgrade, who Maya um, knows so well. Um, and one of the things that the women in black have been doing, I mean, they, I mean, how long have they been organizing, Maya? Since 1991? I mean, talk about deservedly burnt out, you know. Uh, if anyone deserves to be burned out, it is the Serbian uh, women in black. And yet, in the last several years, they've tried to bring women deliberately cross-ethnically together, not so, so much to have an agenda, but just to tell, so what is life like for you? And so that there is a safe space, a non-judgmental space for women, and we use this term, share their stories, and that sounds pretty benign and not very, you know, acute, but in fact, it is very difficult um, for women to even in that kind of space, and since it's cross-ethnic, it doesn't necessarily automatically feel safe, um, to, to talk about what it has been like since the Dayton Accords, right? Um, and how have they experienced that? And that seems to be quite powerful, because if you can speak out loud to at least some strangers, and you can be given, if you will, permission, and, create, and safe space can be created where you can say things that you would never say to your mother-in-law. You would never say even to your daughter. You wouldn't say to your husband. And you probably wouldn't say to your neighbors. But there, you can hear yourself saying, this isn't what I signed up for. right? Is it ever going to end? And besides the fact that the government isn't taking responsibility for the multiple layers of... Um, wounds that he is suffering. So I think that's really important, and I'll just add on to this. You know, I'm a bit worried about the kind of westernization of PTSD. There is a kind of, I mean, the good news is, and this is, you know, carrying on from Pat Barker's, you know, novelistic accounts and so on, but there is an increasing awareness, although most militaries do not want to hear it because they do not want to hear that killing has such a mental cost, right? Their whole construction of masculinity is that it will not cost you much, and in fact, it will build up your self-esteem. So to take on board the mental health consequences of killing um, is really, really something that most militaries do not want to hear. So the fact that PTSD is now being taken at all seriously uh, by any militaries in the UK and Canada and the US um, is really, that is a step forward. On the other hand, nobody talks about the post-traumatic stress of 
a woman in Baghdad who saw her husband killed, or the post-traumatic stress of a child who saw both his or her parents killed. And in fact, there is now um, just one, the last time I heard any information, there was just one child's PTSD ward in all of Iraq. But how many children in Iraq could be accurately diagnosed as suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder? Probably many. Um, so the multiple layers of revelation and of admission and of, if necessary, complaint, I think really is important, but it oftentimes can happen by groups that know, that are practiced and have worked very hard to learn how to create safe spaces, non-judgmental safe spaces. But that, as you all know who've done this work, that takes a lot of effort and probably a lot of mistakes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Next one. I think Cynthia right up to the back. Yeah. Actually, the time has gone by in a way for this comment. I wanted to go back to the tree in Tavistock Square. Oh, good, please. And just say that every 6th of August, we are there under that tree. The mayor of Camden is always there. We sing Kodumotachi ni in Japanese. And there is something about a memorial which is a tree, which you can be under, we love that tree, to be underneath it rather than have to face a block of stone, um, I think is wonderful. Um, somebody maybe has thought about what you do in and around and with a memorial rather than just sort of having it dumped there. Right. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it really is, it says particularly maybe the best memorials are the ones where the users of it transform its meaning. The worst memorials where you can't do anything with it. Right? When I was down searching for the, um, the memorial to um, women in the munitions factories and was walking around and actually for the first time in ages looking at everything um, around uh, um, um, Trafalgar Square, um, in fact, one of the things I was struck by is that almost all the tourists, you know what they love about Trafalgar Square? They love the lions, right? <laughs> there must be more photographs in more people's computers at home all around the world of their own kids on the lions. And I thought, well, in some ways, they're kind of demilitarizing Nelson, right? Um, because it's the, the lions, the animals, and climbing over them. That's really what you want to take the picture of your kid with. Um, so it is, it is interesting to think about which of creating a memorial that, in fact, can be transformed uh, by the people who engage with it, right? Just like the rubbing on Maya Lin's um, wall. Okay, next one was... Um... Oh, great. Um, hello. Um, I was just wondering um, what you could, uh, I don't know if you know about this, another scenario. In a, um, I was thinking about post-war and illegitimate violence in a post-war scenario by women. And there was a woman, I think quite a young Muslim woman in maybe Newham in East London who went to her MP's surgery and tried to kill him in response to the Iraq war. I don't know oh, if it was after the that. end of the Iraq war, but it was after the beginning. 
and she was, I think, declared insane, and she and they found terrorist videos on her computer. But it was the the idea that it's the immediately seen as insane to respond to many people dying, whereas realistically, an MP voting for a war is one of the most culpable people in that war, and um, it was actually a single personal feminist, not feminist, but yes, female yeah. response that was the most illegitimate violence and immediately ruled as illegitimate, whereas it was never really questioned the legality of the uh, kind of distant, much less agency, supposedly, of the male decision. That's, that's a really, really good point to make and a story to go with the point, and also all of us, you know, because it's our justice system, right? It's our media system to declare some people insane and other people's sane and rational. So it's a, it's, a, it's a story worth retelling. Yeah, it really is. I think that's very... Because people in post-war will remember that story. And insofar as people remember that story and impose that conventional understanding of sanity and sanity on it, it becomes part of the post-war understanding of the Iraq war in the UK. Responsible anymore, that's yeah. Yeah. No. 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 Really. And so you feel kind of helpless, right? And how, what do you do when you feel helpless? What kind of act do you take? You know, um. Marcia. Hi. Thank Hi. you. Thank you again, Cynthia. I just wanted to ask you if you could say something about the post-war in particular, because um, I'm thinking about a similar term, which is peacetime, mm -hmm. which feminist scholars have been uh, deploying in so many different contexts. And I was thinking about recent work that I've been doing in Liberia, where the term peacetime is used by the UN and by the peacekeepers, but the term post-war is starting to be used by Liberian people who uh -huh. feel that um, maybe they were too quick to use the term peace, and now that the UN um, is about to leave in 2014, oh, they are invested in thinking about the potential of conflict returning. And in particular, women are very concerned about conflict returning and of continued violence in another form, in another manifestation. So I was just thinking about the way in which the term post-war can be utilized by feminist groups in particular, but also the way in which it's relevant to um, uh, ex-combatants and um, uh, UN, UN institutional figureheads and so on. Yeah, yeah, because it, it's true. If you can, it's very interesting, Marsha, because if you can declare unilaterally, right, if you're the UN, the UNPKO, the UN Security Council, if you can declare that peacetime has now come to a place where you have a peacekeeping mission, you can pull out, right? I mean, it is very much like, you know, the kind of fantasy um, that the Obama administration is necessarily creating for the consumption of American voters. And yes, if you think I'm nervous about tomorrow, I am so nervous. <laughs> I am so, I've already voted. I've already voted because I was worried my plane wouldn't get back on time. But the thing is that but the Obama administration, their way of, of not appearing to be too anti-militarist, 
and yet pulling out American forces from Afghanistan is kind of to prematurely declare peacetime. So peacetime, I think you're right. I think it's sometimes wielded, not always, but it can be wielded to shed responsibility. Right? And so it's very interesting to hear some Liberians now really saying, let's not call it peacetime prematurely. Post-war is still defined by the thing it's the post of. Right? And so post-war is much more complicated, much more um, iffy, much more riddled with militarization um, than simply peacetime. So I think that's, a, that's very interesting to hear the Liberian discussion now, but also the UN um, official discussion trying to impose the definition of peacetime on a society that they no longer want to spend the money on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hi there. <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah. Um, thank you, uh, uh, Professor Enlo, for your extempore talk. Um, very thought-provoking. But I, I must admit to being rather uh, uneasy about your example of Hiroshima because it's a bit ambiguous. The, uh, the fact is Hiroshima was a naval base which had already been bombed heavily. And uh, at a time when, uh, uh, in fact, the, uh, the Imperial High Command... Uh, had authorized contacts with the American leadership for a possible surrender, mm. although it was, it, was not, it was not universally accepted within the staff. Uh, uh, through through, uh, through uh, non, non-military nuclear scientists. Very interesting. Now, the, the, the fact is that uh, there were some people uh, in, in the American military who wanted to bomb Tokyo. Yes. But, in fact, that was, quote, not acceptable to American public opinion because it would have resulted in 20 million deaths whereas uh, uh, casualties of less than a million were quote acceptable. So uh, I, I don't really think that that supports your argument very well. The, well, the, 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 other, thing, the other thing is that in fact uh, you know, there is overwhelming evidence that those, those uh, uh, peace feelers were uh, being mooted uh, in, in uh, June and July. Wow. Uh, uh, of 1945, when the war was certainly lost, when in fact uh, Japan was starving, not, not just unable to, to fight on. And also, there's overwhelming evidence that Japan had been forced into that war uh, through sanctions and forced into a war which, uh, with, a, with, a, with an enemy which had ten times its own industrial capacity and which had very little chance of winning. So uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about that. Well, this is very interesting. I, I didn't know this history. It, it's very, very um, interesting to hear. I think what I was most interested in was the debate amongst Japanese about how to tell those stories. So that wasn't my story. It was, so, it was much more about why is there a new wing that has a different focus and uh, what is the debate amongst Japanese themselves about how to tell their own story. So that wasn't... I mean, I wouldn't presume to be uh, a historian of Japan in the war. What you said was really interesting to me. It was more what I was hearing Japanese say to each other about their own attempt to complicate the story of um, the uh, devastation in Hiroshima and Hiroshima's war, war role. So it was much more about their debate about each other in the post-war about what Hiroshima 
meant and how the story should be told. But your part of it should also I mean, be part of the third wing. Um, and I really mean that. I mean, museums never stand still, right? And they're very powerful. So it's very interesting to hear what you're, what you're saying. Very interesting. Okay, I think we'll perhaps make this the last one, Alex. Okay, thanks, Cynthia, for a great talk. Um, I'm, I'm here. Oh, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lots Hi. of what you were saying, Hi, made me think about lots of examples from my ethnographic research on a micro scale. Tell people, I know what it is, but tell people what your research is. <clears throat> it's a study of uh, women marriage service men living on a base overseas. So, you know, when we talk about complaining or we talk about post-war normalization, I'm scribbling away uh, of these examples in microcosm, and so much of your work has been about studying these microcosms. And, but what I'm asking is how, how can we make the links between the micro and macro from the perspective of uh, being at LSE, for example, mm -hmm. and having a great big capital I, capital R department, mm -hmm. and, you know just making the connections that so much of your work has been about. Do we concentrate on the policy? Are we looking for a pragmatic activist approach? Just because it seems like there's, it, within the case studies themselves, there's, there's still such a division between the domestic and the institutional, or the public and the private, or the national and the international. It's really hard to sort of transcend those binaries. Yeah, I, I think maybe the first thing is those of you who want to start writing it as small i, small r. I'm only half kidding. Um, uh, and, but the other is, is to constantly make sure that all of you who are working in this department or other departments um, uh, in the UK or elsewhere, that you constantly say, what is it that the micro-revelations the exploration and the findings about the, what does it do to the alleged big picture? Um, I've, Ron Ware and I were talking a bit about writing forwards and afterwards for books, and you can be quite subversive. Um, they're very short, and um, they're an opportunity. And one of the ones that I took great pleasure in writing was one that I called, What If Patriarchy Is the Big Picture? Um, because I think this notion of the big picture is so hierarchical as far as whose work is taken seriously, right? And that what if the, the mantelpiece in Ohio, what if the back of the pickup truck, what if the meeting of curators, what if that is the big picture, right? So it really forces us. It's certainly not the way I was trained at Berkeley, but it, it makes me think that... Two things. One, that all of us, whether we're in journalism or in NGO work or in agency work or in formal academic work, all of us have to learn how to do ethnographic work. We have to know how to observe, how to record, how to be trusted enough so people who aren't used to talking to the likes of us will talk to us. And we all have to take our work seriously enough so that we actually can say what it does to inform the, the larger pictures, so that the, pri the study of the private is never less than the study of the public, right? That the study of the informal is never less intellectually or politically than the study of the formal. That the study of the masculinized space is never less, lesser 
than the study of the feminized face. But it means that all of us, we talked about this the other day, but all of us have to find the language so that we genuinely can explain to people, not defensively, but really explain to people why if you don't take the feminized spaces, the domestic spaces, the mundane spaces, the informal processes seriously, you will not be able to understand this thing called the big picture. So small i, small r. Thank you very much.